Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. Welcome to today's talkie bit. So it seems that last week's talkie bit both kind of connected and didn't connect. And I don't spend a lot of time evaluating that. I have conversations with people uh, afterward and ongoing, and that sort of feels like my primary litmus test for um, sort of how well I did certain aspects of my res- uh, of my role, my responsibility in our context. But the fact that it kind of connected and didn't connect last week is not that unusual, I expect. But in this case, there were some particulars about that that I found interesting and that I want to talk about a little bit. So as you probably know, one of the highest values that is consciously operating for me when I consider what to offer by way of explorations in our setting is that of having this half hour of our shared life together be a catalyst for people's own adventures. And there's, there's often a bit of tension between that and trying to sort of assess or imagine what might contribute to that and the things that I find intriguing or that really call out to me to be explored. I had, uh, I had a former colleague who liked the metaphor of tossing grenades for that kind, of, um, that kind of public sharing of ideas. That particular metaphor is a bit too particular in its violence and its obvious power imbalances for my sensibilities. It feels like there's an actor and those acted upon in that metaphor in, in really aggressive ways. But other, in other ways, I think it's kind of apt. Um, but when I think about the apt portions of that metaphor, I find myself drifting toward pictures that are more organic for what I'm trying to accomplish. I would say something maybe more like um, more like deep tillage. You know, something that is disruptive, it requires a significant expenditure of energy, maybe there's even some hazards to it, but always in the interest of positive growth and change. And so that's that's the space in which I want to operate, in which I try to operate. Now, if this sounds a little bit like a setup for me being self-defensive, just stay with me. That is not the case, um, but it, it could sure sound like that or feel like that. If you had occasion to either be present for last week's talkie bit or you caught the podcast later in the week, you might recall that I offered three what I call just imagine metaphors or scenarios for ways that we might think about the table going forward. Uh, it, it was it was my New Year's fireside address, you know. Didn't call it that and didn't think about it that way, but it's kind of a funny picture. Anyway, I suggested that we might constructively consider, and this was sort of the first of those three, we might constructively consider this community as a sort of religious harm reduction site. I suppose it's implicit in that that, that religion always causes harm, which was not what I was reaching for with the metaphor, but it certainly sometimes does, and what might be done about that. And I expanded on that by suggesting that we think of that metaphor as illustrating a kind of safer place 
in which we could get what we needed without having to unduly danger ourselves to do so. I don't know if it's your story, but it's many people's stories that they're part of religious settings because there are things that they really value and cherish. And then there's a whole bunch of other things that they feel like they have to have an off switch for. They can't stay in the space. And to try to make a space where there's maybe fewer off switches, if you will, um, for people that are exploring what they believe, that that felt like it worked uh, at some level for me. Now, there are several things that are implicitly super complex in that metaphor, some of which I touched on last week, but not the least of those is addiction itself, because that's sort of the harm reduction conversation tends to center around addiction and response to addiction. Reddiction is something we know relatively little about, and we've yet to find any truly effective or at least uniformly effective response to. And so that was partly that connected didn't connect piece. This metaphor, this particular metaphor of the three that I offered, this one got a reaction. Some folks weren't sure if I meant that we should be like a harm reduction site at the table, or like the more that I was trying to say that we shouldn't be like that. So I thought I'd clarify that. To be clear, I was pointing toward should. Um, and when I went back through my notes, I was like, I, I, I felt like I was clear enough about that, but I uh, somehow that didn't land um, uh, uniformly for sure. And someone else really augured into the details of that whole harm reduction model as it's been worked with in the realm of drug addiction treatment and uh, offered some very thoughtful reflections on the limitations of that, things about it that don't work. Um, as well as some ways in which it's been combined with other ideas to mitigate some of the downsides of it. Interesting article in the current issue of McLean's, an interview with a Canadian doctor, physician who's involved in this approach and combining safe space and safe supply uh, in the drug addiction realm with, uh, with um, in this particular case, with therapeutic use of medical drugs, as well as some other supports. Anyway, that kind of conversation, there's a little bit of that. And in the first case, where there was confusion about what I meant, I felt like I definitely didn't hit the bullseye as a communicator. And in the second case, I felt like I came closer. Maybe that's too binary, uh, because in both instances, people were plugging ideas that I had shared into their own perspectives and experiences, and they were communicating. We were having conversations about it. And that, I think, is awesome. And I think pretty close to the heart of the way the table works well when it's working well, if that makes sense. When, when that is happening, when ideas are going out into the community from whatever source, whether it's from me doing a talkie bit or a song or whether it's a conversation with somebody else or a different talkie bit person, it doesn't matter what the source is in terms of our mission of exploring what we believe. If it's happening, um, we're, doing, we're doing what we're there to do. We're exploring what we believe and making space for that. So that felt good. The second metaphor for our community that I offered was that of a home for story seekers. A place where we can poke around in the huge range of stories that might help us make sense of the world as we experience and imagine it, as well as the ways in which those experiences might touch on things we can't readily explain, that it might touch on mysteries, on what I quoted Bono as calling the existence we can't prove exists. That was interesting to me because I had also invited as part of our gathering people to start to to feed into a wider conversation the things that they value about the table and in particular about the kids' table. Um, I got I got an email from somebody early in the following week uh, who had asked um, one of their kids what they really liked about the table, and uh, an older uh, older kid, 
And that person had, among other things, pointed to the fact that you could mix things there. You could, you could combine stories um, and that that was just a part of the way the community worked. And they really liked that. I thought that was pretty fascinating. And from my perspective, very heartening. And then the third picture that I had offered last week was that of a culture lab. Uh, sort of similar to the story-seeking image in some ways in the sense of combining things, but more directly related to active experimentation along the lines of taking existing things and mixing them together in new or different ways, different combinations. It didn't occur to me at the time, but a related metaphor might be anything along the lines of what we would use a phrase like mashups for. Uh, mashups is a kind of uh, lingo slang that we tend to use in our culture primarily for... Um, Maybe it's not true. I encounter it primarily as being applied to musical combinations. Um, but any kind of creative process that brings things together in a different form, different combinations, especially prevalent in the arts. One of our adult kids has uh, made the creative colliding of existing forms a, a central component of their um, artistic work. And I can tell you from being close to that, that if being unsettled is something that you're open to, then... This remixing or recontextualizing things that are usually regarded as sort of complete unto themselves, maybe even sort of uh, sacrosanct or, uh, you know, not to be messed with unto themselves. When they get messed with, when they get mashed up with other things, that's going to that's gonna rattle the cage of complacency. So if that's a thing that, uh, that you're open to, then that, that culture lab metaphor might have been one that resonated. Now, all of that got me thinking about what some other images might be interesting to consider as, I would say, in this case, facets of this community as we look to the future of the community. And that word facets, I think that's an important one as well, at least helpful. I don't necessarily think that it serves us well as a community to try to find a single image. We might be small. <laughs> nope. Let me correct my language. We're small. But in context... I look around the room physically when we're together or I look around the room sort of in my imagination. I think about who I know us to be as people. We're small, but we're kind of remarkably diverse in context. Um, there are aspects of our diversity that are completely missing in action, of course. I think that would be true in any community setting. But there's a lot there as well. And those different points of view that come with that diversity, I would say, are essential to our well-being, especially if we want to continue to gather around this central tenet or mission of existing to explore what we believe. All right. So here is another idea or value or facet, whatever sort of image works for you. Maybe you have a different one than any of those that I think is worth our consideration. This is an old idea. Maybe it's even an ancient one. I, I would say that it is. But it keeps cropping up in the work of what theologian Marcus Borg calls spirit people. It keeps showing up in the thinking and practice of those whom history has recognized as being able to regularly, readily touch that realm that most of us struggle to connect with. But this value for those folks keeps showing up as significant. Um, in that view of an experience of the world, that realm for which we might use the language of spirit or spirituality. And in Borg's view, Jesus is one such person. He's, he's one of those spirit people, one of those people who could touch that realm and who people around could see could touch that realm. 
And this, this particular value that I want to explore is very much present in Jesus' thought and his teaching and his way of living. It's a value that's often misunderstood in the contemporary West, as it was in first century Palestine, in Jesus' time and culture. And I think it could benefit us to unpack it a little bit to consider what it might have to do with us as a community. Our English language, the most common word for the value that I'm gesturing toward here is the word compassion. Now, that is an interesting word, not least of all because we often find ourselves most comfortable with only half of its meaning and really kind of complexed and disquieted by its other half. And I really am going to contrast these two as as though they were halves. I realize that's a kind of uh, simplification, but I think it'll work for us in this case. The part that we tend to feel most at ease with is the tender, sort of nurturant part. This is the part that if we think about definitions of compassion, this is the part that has to do with what we might call being with another person. When it comes to understanding what compassion is, we tend to focus on that being with part. And we tend to think about that in terms of things such as connecting deeply with someone or comforting someone or validating another person's experiences of pain or suffering. All truly good stuff and all the stuff of compassion, all defining characteristics of compassion. As with so many ideas, not least of all ideas that we might think of as good or as ideas surrounding things that in Western thought might have been called virtues, there's another side to this one. And I want to borrow language here from several thinkers. There's, this, is, this is not exclusive to any one thinker about the nature of compassion. Um, but I want to call the other side of this Fierce compassion. And, and, and fierce compassion is sort of the action-oriented face of compassion. This is, maybe we would say, this is, like, uh, this is like the firefighter rushing into the burning building to rescue a trapped individual. I don't think any of us would hesitate to think of an act like that as compassionate, but it has a discernibly different aspect to it than, than those ideas of connecting, comforting, and validating do. And if we, if we wanted to identify some characteristics of this expression of compassion, the fierce compassion side, as we did for the nurturing side, um, we might suggest that it's characterized by things like protecting others or providing for those in need, uh, motivating one another in the direction of doing what is right or what is better, even if it's hard. So those kind of things. So this is the face of compassion that can easily look exactly like activism, for example. It's often Activism is often an expression of fierce compassion. So to put this into the context of ancient teachings within a tradition that many of us have grown up around or influenced by, both of those aspects of compassion are strongly present in the Judeo-Christian tradition and in some ways present in a manner that is deeply informative and I would say even inspiring whether we feel like we identify with those traditions or not. So I'm going to mine those traditions a bit this morning um, for their for their hoped-for benefit for all of us, whether we feel like, oh yeah, that's, you know, whether we identify with them or not. At the center of the ways in which those traditions treat compassion is, once again, not surprisingly, I think this is a, there's a human draw to this um, that is bigger than time and culture in some ways. At the center of those ways that the traditions of uh, the Judeo and Christian traditions treat compassion is nurturance. And in particular, at the center of those, as we have it 
captured in language is maternal nurturance. In biblical language, the word for compassion is closely related language-wise to the word for womb. And so when the Bible talks about, for example, God as compassionate, that's often the emphasis. These ideas that the divine is is a womb or is womb-like, is life-giving, is nourishing. So it's not that tough to see how that kind of set of ideas or stories or texts would suggest that it's God, the, the nurturant being, the, the womb-like being that keeps this whole thing that we call life spinning and alive, right? That it would make sense that from the womb of the divine would come life as we experience it. And these are perhaps lovely ways to imagine the divine as as motivated by the same sorts of feelings as a mother might uniquely have for their child. Tenderness, but also a will that is bent toward their well-being and that carries with it hope and that carries with it concern. And these are all the sorts of notions that are easiest to hold if we think of, you know, as God, of God as a personified being as well. And so again, it's not a huge surprise that traditions that have an emphasis like this around compassion would also imagine the divine as someone. Those things fit together well. Now, in short, we could think of all of this as sort of the sweet side of compassion, the tender side of compassion. So a bit more about the fierce side of compassion. Let's think uh, for a moment about Mama Bear and the Cubs, for instance. I don't know if you've ever had occasion in person. Uh, That would be a rare experience, I think, but some of us have had it. Or on a screen to watch a Mama Bear with her little ones when it's all kind of playful. But when it's playful, it is enormously cute. It is full of literally warm and fuzzies. But, as we probably all know, it's not a good idea to get between Mama and the kids or to do anything else that threatens the young ones. Do that, and we may promptly find ourselves on the receiving end of fierce compassion. (laughs) And as a receiver, it probably doesn't feel like we might feel like compassion goes missing in the moment and all we've got is fierce but it is the motive force, the energy is compassion. Now, this is all, at least in my mind, very related to how we imagine the divine, how we give shape to what we believe about that whole realm of spirit or mystery or existence that we can't prove exists. And within the tradition in which Jesus stands as a holy or a spirit person, a teacher about this part of our human experience, there's a discernible shift that takes place within the tradition, the Judeo-Christian tradition itself around this. So I'm going to, I'm going to sort of divide this into Judeo and Christian, you know, the kind of the big chunks here. And if we were to try to sum up the Hebrew text's perspective on what it means to live in a way that cooperates with the divine, that lines up with what we've called reality in some of our conversations here, that, that fits with how, who God is and how God operates to use Uh, biblical language and that can help us nurture an authentic and vibrant spirituality then if we want the if we want sort of a summary of the hebrew perspective on that we could find it in a text like leviticus 19.2 in which the writer gives voice to god as saying you shall be holy speaking to us as humans you shall be holy for i the lord your god am holy so that's a pretty good summary of that perspective in other words from that vantage point to live in a God-like or God-pleasing way, as understood within that tradition, was to live what this writer is calling a holy life. Now, 
This is an interesting thing. Holiness in contemporary Christianity, so on the Christian side, has often been about piety. It's often been about kind of keeping religious rules in terms of how we behave, how we express our values in culture, in relationships. But in Hebrew, holy is an identity word, like full on. It literally means set apart. That's what the word actually means. Uh, it, it kind of has nothing to do directly with those pietistic meanings that it's often been given in Christianity. So think for a moment about how you would construct a religion, how you would build that story if you were from an oppressed minority. And if that oppression of your people had been a, an abiding and enduring and impactful theme and experience for all of your history as a people. Whatever else might come to the forefront of that kind of constructing, clearly establishing an identity as a people would be high on the agenda. And if that identity could be understood to be interlocked with the nature of the divine, if it could be understood to be key to getting and keeping God on your side, then that's even better. That's a, that's a big lever. That's a very powerful piece of that puzzle. So, the Hebrew God, for reading in the First Testament, the Old Testament, the Hebrew God is understood, for example, as one. Yahweh is one rather than many. And that is unique in that context in terms of how people were imagining the divine. And the people that were adhering to that cultural group and religion that were gathered around that particular understanding of the divine were supposed to carry that same kind of identity, the identity of one, of set apart. And so if you want to put that into sort of more vernacular language, they were expected to, motivated to carry a perspective along the lines of our God is it. That's why we have King of Kings, Lord of Lords kind of language in these texts, right? Our God is it. And as long as we stay faithful to our expressions of that, we are also it. We are also holy. We are also set apart. So that's kind of that, uh, the Judeo perspective on that stuff. And then Jesus comes along and moves the goalposts. And he does that in part by redefining how people should imagine the divine. And he says it this way. This is from Luke 6, 36. Be compassionate as your heavenly Father is compassionate. can appreciate how that's different from be holy, perhaps. We'll unpack that a little bit. When I read it out loud, like I'm doing in this setting, you can't see the punctuation. But if you could, you would probably quickly understand that the sentence does not mean be compassionate because God is compassionate. Pretty easy misread there, but that's not what the sentence is saying. What it is saying is, be compassionate in the ways that God is compassionate. Now, this shift, as people would have experienced it in Jesus' day, was more than a little bit jarring. That shift from holy to compassionate. It was, to use a phrase from theologian Walter Brueggemann, a call to be, quote, an alternative community, with an alternative consciousness, not a little shift, in other words. Not least of all, because it, it had a huge impact on how people who were living in a way that was cooperative with the divine would think about their identity, because it was a shift away from in-grouping, away from that we're one, we're set apart, 
It was a shift away from in-grouping and toward the acceptance of those that an in-group would have regarded as outcasts. So this is one of the most radical things that Jesus did, as we have the stories, is not just accept outcasts, but identify with outcasts and kind of go, this is it, this is us. This is all of us. So this is, in the context of Jesus' time and culture, one of his most radical teachings, that our identity is not defined by the standard of adhering to certain religious norms. And Jesus was super hard on this. Arguably, this is, this is what pissed more people off about Jesus' teaching in context than anything else. But, but he said that our identity is not defined by the standard of adhering to certain religious norms, but by our own connection to mystery, our own connection to spirit, to the divine. So that was a huge shift away from a relatively combative way of understanding identity and toward what I heard someone recently call a peace party within Judaism. <laughs> now, here's the complex bit. That, that call to be compassionate because that for which we might use God language is compassionate, combined with this emphasis in Jesus' teachings on peace, complete with you know street theater expressions like riding into this embattled symbol of identity that is Jerusalem on an animal that symbolized peace rather than war, when there were a lot of people whose messianic expectations were that whatever a, a savior meant, it meant somebody who was going to gather an army and kick Rome out of the country. That might suggest that it's sort of the sweet side of compassion that was central to what Jesus was on about. Maybe that's why we have so many groovy hippie images of Jesus kicking around in the West. I'm not sure, right? Peace, man. You know, like kind of that, that perspective on things. But remember that this is also culture making. This is also the stuff of telling meaning making stories. And the meaning running in the background of be compassionate because God is compassionate is that whatever it is that underpins reality, whatever it is that makes this whole mysterious thing we call life actually happen, whatever that is, it is compassionate. And compassion, which is a reality that is easily observed in as simple a metaphor as the mama bear and the cubs, is both tender and nurturant and fierce when it needs to be to protect the vulnerable. And from Jesus' perspective, this line of storytelling wasn't individualistic. In the end, it was for everybody. It was about trying to get people to change the way that they lived. And, and here's the because. There's an urgency to all of this when you actually read the texts. It was because the end of the world was imminent. That's a whole other conversation. Not one we probably heard if we grew up around many common expressions of Western Christianity, but I would argue along with, uh, backed, bolstered uh, robustly by contemporary religious scholarship that it's abundantly clear in the teachings of Jesus that his own sense of urgency came from his own personal belief that the end of the world was right in the wings, most likely something that would happen to his own generation. So when he talked about being compassionate as the way to live, he wasn't talking about a nice option. He wasn't talking about sort of a uh, this is sort of a bonus virtue. Great to practice once you got everything else sorted out and your life is kind of humming along. That was not his perspective at all on the urgency of being compassionate. He was talking about the sort of thing that would inform the core of a community that operated differently because it believed something different. One of the reasons we don't hear this talked about in churches that call themselves Christian very often is because it's immediately apparent when you follow this line of reasoning that Jesus was wrong. <laughs> the uh, the end of the world 
did not come in his generation. And, um, and in that regard, you know, the, the texts speak differently for sure. Now, these are pretty wide ranging ideas. So I want to see if I can sum them up at least for today. If the way we assemble what we believe, and that's, that's pretty much how I picture it. As I've talked about before, it feels a bit like a Lego project to me in this culture, in this age. If the way that we assemble what we believe is guided to any degree by an idea like God is holy, so we need to be holy. And we understand that by holy, we mean what the word actually means, which is set apart. We're going to tend to come up with systems of belief that reinforce that set apart from others aspect of what we believe and how we live that out. And if we assemble what we believe around an idea more like God is compassionate, so we need to be compassionate or we need to be compassionate because that's a way to live a life that's in cooperation with reality, or with the divine. We are going to come up with systems of belief that reinforce that. Set apart beliefs do tend to produce structures of belief and community that circle the group and that look inwards toward making sure that we're doing what we understand to be right and that being compassionate, that other perspective, tends to look outward. So if be holy looks in, be compassionate tends to look out toward participating in making a better world for all. If God, if the divine is, def is defined by compassion, as Jesus taught, that's for everyone. That's the nature of compassion as it reaches toward the other's experience. If, as Jesus was teaching, the energy that underpins and fuels this whole thing we call life could be defined as compassion of both the tender and the fierce variety, then that energy, like compassion, is for everyone. It is not for a set-apart or, kind of, to use the biblical language again, a holy group. And if we think about it that way, it's not so hard to see why folks were bent out of shape by what this upstart rabbi was saying. It kind of kind of exploded this notion that God is ours and we can, and you can have him too, but only if you become like us, only if you join our set-apartness. Instead of that, what this perspective that Jesus espouses in that Luke text, instead of that inward looking, you can come in too, but you have to comply. Instead of that perspective, it was saying something more like, whatever it is that is the energy that keeps the universe going, whatever God is on about, one of the defining characteristics of that is compassion for everyone and everything in it. If you want to live a life in cooperation, if you want to hold beliefs in cooperation with that reality, imitate that. As a way of defining a community, that sounds to me like something worth exploring. And uh, so I'm going to follow my nose a little further on that in the coming weeks. But that's where we're going to leave it for now. And, uh, and over to you. Hopefully this will be a catalyst that gets your own thinking and exploring, um, musing on some of those themes. Peace, everybody. It's been good to be with you. Bye for now.